Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host in The Pain Cave and I'm very excited to be joined this afternoon by one of the seminal figures in the sport of, or at least a modern kind of iteration of the sport of ultra running today. He is a podcaster, a race director, and uh, kind of just an overall influencer in the sport of ultra and trail running. Calling in from Colorado is Sherpa John LaCroix. Sherpa John, welcome to The Pain Cave. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Yeah, no, I'm psyched. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm psyched that you were able to to that we were able to make this work. Uh, you've been somebody who's been on my radar for quite some, some time, and uh, I think we've been seeing a lot of kind of changes and and evolution in the sport of ultra and trail running as everything continues to grow. And you've kind of been on the front line of that for a long time, and wanted to get your opinions of some of that stuff. Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm. Uh... I'm not short on any opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for those of you who, or for those of our listeners who may not be aware of, of your background and everything else, take us back a little bit, maybe 10 or 15 years ago to how you kind of came to start in the sport. You've been kind of racing for almost 15 years at this point and doing, uh, you know, ultras and trail races all over the country. How did you get your start here? What's your background? And, and um, how did you kind of build yourself a career in this in this field? Yeah, so in um, 2004, I lived in New Hampshire. I grew up, I grew up my whole life in New Hampshire. And um, outdoor enthusiasts in New Hampshire have this goal of hiking the state's 4,000 footers. And um, so what ended up happening was um, I was setting out to finish up hiking the 4,000 footers and I made a documentary film about doing so. And in the process of making the film, I would wondered if anybody had, you know, hiked the 4,000 footers the fastest. And what I was able to figure out was that a guy by the name of K, uh, Ted Cave Dog Keezer Mm-hmm. Was a Barkley a Barkley finisher mm-hmm. um, actually once upon a time held the record, and the record was at the time held by another ultra runner named Tim Seaver. And so I interviewed both of them for my film, and they both started mentioning this ultra style in which they hiked the mountains. And I was like, "What the, what the hell is ultra style? What's an ultra marathon?" And they told me about it, and and I asked them, you know, what do you what does it take to be an ultra runner? And they both had the same answer and neither one of those guys mentioned running. Hmm. Uh, They said, you need to be stubborn and able to put up with discomfort. And if there's one thing I knew about myself at the time is that I was both of those. So (laughs) uh, I decided that, you know, I want to be an ultra marathon runner and I want to run these types of events. And at the time, ultra running was ridiculously niche. There were, there was only like, God, maybe thirty hundred milers in the country, and now there's over a hundred and eighty or something like that. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was it was pretty uh, unknown, under the radar. It was pre Dean Carnaz's book, Ultra Marathon Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I'm just, I'm somebody that likes to immerse himself in what he's and uh, what I'm doing in my life, and so I immerse myself in ultra marathon running. And eventually uh, came out to Colorado for a wedding and fell in love with this place. And I worked at an ABC news station at the time. I went home and, and basically sabotaged my job at the news station so that uh, I could go back to college and get a different degree, which I got in outdoor education. And I minored in recreation and hospitality management and ended up uh, moving out to Colorado less than 30 hours after I graduated to work in the outdoors. Oh, wow. And um, I was a professional guide for a time, taking people hiking and rock climbing and snowshoeing and rafting and mountain biking and trail running and you name it. And uh, after about a year and a half, two years of that, I decided to uh, start my own thing. And ultra running is the thing that I'm most passionate about in life. And it's given me a lot and I as I've recognized that it's given others and decided that I was going to become a full-time race director um, so now I'm uh, the owner and race director of the human potential running series which is one of the top four largest ultra series in the country now before you had heard of ultra running you you said you had hiked the 4,000 footers and you clearly were into the outdoors but did you have a running background had you done 
road races, marathons, or anything like that? Or was this a whole new field for you? Not at all. I played uh, soccer from mm-hmm. a very a very young age all the way through high school, but I never played on a high school team. I was a recreational soccer player. I never was into running. I ne- running was a punishment for like everybody else. If you did right. something wrong at soccer practice, you got you had to go run. Right. Um, but I never minded it, and um, I, I you know I started hiking, uh, peak bagging with my father when I was ten years old. And my dad uh, trained to run in the 100th running of the Boston Marathon. And we started running up mountains and as part of his training. And I really think that that's where my trail running began, um, probably around the age of 13, 14. And uh, I just didn't realize it at the time. I, I was a hiker. You know, that's right. really, I, got in, I got into ultra running from hiking. And something that I learned early on in ultra running was that you know, at the time, the best ultra runners, Sue Johnston, Carl Meltzer, mm-hmm. they, they were the top male and female at the time. They're both, they were both from New England, and they both had a hiking background before they were runners. Right. And so for me, it was just like, all right, so this is a sport for hikers. Right. Um, and, and that really kind of allowed me to, to really embrace it more. Yeah. And I mean, some of the other names you mentioned, like Cave Dog, same, same thing. Who, yep. who was really a, a through hiker. And I mean, he's come up on this show before when we had Mike Sudi on, who uh, broke his record, broke Cave Dog's record for the, uh, the Catskill 3500 peaks. A lot, of the, a lot of the kind of pioneers of the sport were, right, were long distance hikers. I mean, it's only been recently that we've started to see people with running high school and collegiate running backgrounds that are really taking it uh, to the to the longer distance stuff it, it the the roots of the sport are much much different like you said that's correct now I, I do want to talk about your your race series and your your race directing out in Colorado but you were a race director before you even moved out there starting in New England right that's true yeah in um, in 2006 I ran the Vermont 50 and I ran it with alongside stride for stride with a guy named Joe DeSena. And Joe is most known for being the, one of the co-founders of Spartan Races. Right. And it was during that run at the Vermont 50 that Joe and I had a really in-depth discussion about starting a race series in Pittsfield, Vermont, which is just outside of Killington, mm-hmm. uh, called Peak Races. And Joe was basically asking me to be his race director uh, for Peak Races. We had a snowshoe marathon. We had a 50-mile challenge. There mm-hmm. was a six-hour mountain bike race. And I actually declined his uh, request and offer to be RD because I was in school at the time. But he did get a guy by the name of Andy Weinberg to become his race director. And I became a race director's apprentice for Andy. And I helped out with all of the races up there. I helped uh, set them up. I helped promote them. I... You know, I, I basically learned the ins and outs of race directing from Andy Weinberg uh, mm-hmm. by being his assistant. And then in 2008, I directed the first 200-mile ultramarathon in the world uh, right there in Pittsfield. It was called the New England Ultras 200. We had one finisher. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, they, they had like a ridiculous uh, 72-hour cutoff to complete the run or 78 hours. I forget what it was. It was, it was definitely wasn't over 80 hours to complete the 200 miles. <laughs> and so to, to consider that the first one was had like this 72 hour cutoff and we had one finisher and now there's sleep stations. Right. And, you know, and it's just like, are we racing or not? <laughs> you know? And uh, you were also involved in setting up the first death race, right? You, you, uh, kind of started that whole trend as well up in with peak. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's open for debate. You know, <laughs> if, if, uh, I, I vividly remember sending Andy and Joe an email, uh, about the tough guy challenge in England and told them like, there's nothing like this in America and we need to build it. And this is the place to do it. And Joe, you have the money and you have the lawyers. And so, <laughs> and, and you, and you also have the land. So let's do this. And so, yeah, we, we built this event called the death race. And I, I really, I remember all of the ridiculous ideas we were coming up with and planning the event. Like, you know, we, we should make these guys have to carry a canoe <laughs> off, off trail straight up the side of the mountain. So you got to bushwhack with a canoe through the woods, like just crazy stuff like that. But, you know, over time, Joe is Joe's kind of like a PT Barnum type type of dude, and 
And he, he contends that the idea for the death race came up during some adventure race out in Fiji. And it's just like, (laughs) come on, dude. Like, seriously, (laughs) like, can, can we, can we be honest for a moment here and actually tell the the real truth of how this happened? So, so yeah, you know, and out of, out of the death race was, uh, the Spartan races were, were born. And so, you know, there's a whole culture of obstacle course racing that in America that actually started with an email I wrote and nobody has any fucking clue who I am. <laughs> what do you think about that that culture? What do you think about what obstacle course racing has kind of grown into? I mean, that's been, you know, we, we think of this kind of exponential growth among ultras like you, you talk about in the past 15 years, you know, uh, 6x growth in the number of hundreds. But, uh, I mean, obstacle course is even, you could say, more explosive, explosive than that. You know, back in even 2009, 2010, there was, you know, maybe Warrior Dash. And now there's multiple different series and world champions. And, and it's this enormous, these, they get these enormous fields and everything else. What, what are your feelings on, on the way that that kind of niche of the sport has grown and, and kind of become commercialized and everything else? You know, it's funny, when we were first concocting the original death race, the whole idea for the race was that the individuals without ego would know when to quit. <laughs> and so so the race was only finished by the people that had the biggest ego. <laughs> and And we tortured them, and we put them through so many different things to get them to get to the finish. And, and really, it was di- designed for them to figure out that like, you're an egomaniac. You have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and over time, like, I, I've watched the Spartan races explode and turn into this massive selfie culture event. Right. You know, where people are just, it's, a, it's an amusement ride. And people sign up and they attend just to say that they did one right. and to take a, take a selfie to show everybody that they were there. Right. It's the off-road version of, you know, running a marathon for the masses, basically. Correct. And, and while I can appreciate that, and if that's your MO, if that's why you're doing it, hey, more power to you. At least you're out there. At least you're participating. You're pushing yourselves. You're challenging yourselves, et cetera, et cetera, right? Good for you. Right. But at the end of the day, it's, how that's not very sustainable and spartan races has they've been losing money for a couple of years now because the selfie culture also likes to move on to the next big thing right. rather quickly right and so and so now we see spartan races like oh well now we're going to get into trail running and uh they're going to put on a national series of trail races yeah i i've i wanted to talk a little bit about that as well because i'm not sure that you know, one thing when you come from a, a trail background, I mean, certainly, certainly as, you know, sponsorship money has moved into the sport and bigger brands have become more involved in race organization and supporting races and that sort of thing. And as the sport becomes a little bit more professionalized among the top athletes and that sort of thing, we do start to see a little bit more of kind of professional race management and I, I guess this this kind of sense of maybe getting away a little bit from like the dirtbag elements of the sport at its founding. But at the same time, you know, ultra running and trail running still has this kind of grassroots, uh, you know, dirtbag-ish, for lack of a better word, mentality, even that persists, I think, among some of the really top level events out there. And there's still you know, a, a large community feel to it. And, you know, you still have this kind of family feel to it. And I don't want to say that, you know, people aren't making money or that that's not a consideration, but the commercialization aspect of it, I think, for the most part, is backgrounded. Whereas <coughs> that, you know, in my experiences with Spartan Race, with Warrior Dash, with a couple of these other different obstacle course races, that that dynamic seems to have flipped a little bit. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I, I mean, look, people should make money however they think they can make money. And, and if, you know, as long as nobody's getting hurt and, uh, you know, if, if there's a market for it that's going to support you making a living at it, fantastic, do what you do. But I don't know that, that that approach necessarily or that mentality is going to translate to trail running, 
you know, when we have this established community with kind of different, I feel like different values and different ideals a little bit. Yeah, you know, I kind of look at it as Spartan Races is the next commercial entity trying to inject themselves into trail and ultra running. And the first one was really Lifetime Fitness with Leadville. And, you know, ask any old schooler or any traditionalist or anybody who like really loves trail and ultra culture, and they'll tell you that Lifetime really sullied Leadville. It's not the same event. And, and here comes Spartan races and it is a money grab and, and they're claiming it's, oh, well, it's a, it's a great way to get more people into trail running. You should be thankful. Uh, well, I'm not thankful because you're charging the regular entry fee, plus you're charging $20 for everybody to park, plus you're charging $20 per spectator. I mean, right. That's the stuff that, that plus, just seems uh, yeah. like just blatant. Money. Right. The, the charging for parking, charging for spectating, you know, charging all this other to, stuff. Charging to check a bag, $5 right. to check a bag. It's $15 if you didn't pick up your bib the day before at some store. So you get charged for picking your bib up day of. And now you've paid a whole extra entry fee just for showing up. Right, right. <laughs> so they're, they're double dipping on you. And, and where I don't like that is it sets a precedent that all of these people who get into trail and ultra running and they run a Spartan race and they're like, well, now I want to run something else. And so they're kind of come and look at my races and the expectation is going to be there that, well, now am I going to charge $20 for parking? Am I going to? Am I going to charge them per spectator? Right now, I have now I have to answer five hundred question emails about if people can bring a spectator or not. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. You know, it's just it makes my job harder. Uh, and and honestly, knowing how some of those folks operate, having been on the inside early on, they don't give a shit how it affects anybody else. In fact, most times their 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 mission is to kind of aggravate everybody else to the point that you'll want to quit. Hmm. Interesting. Now you mentioned Leadville and when Lifetime took over at Leadville and, and I think you share that opinion with a lot of kind of old schoolers who did Leadville kind of both before and after that the race was, I don't want to say irrevocably changed, but uh, definitely there was a difference in the, uh, the, the sense or the feeling around the race and, and maybe even the way the race was executed after Lifetime came in. Now I, I approach this. I, I've my only experience with Leadville has been since Lifetime took over ownership, so I can't speak to what it was like before that. My mm -hmm. my own experience at Leadville uh, this past year was fantastic. I thought that I mean, yes, the and 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 I also should I need to kind of point out that I'm not uh, completely unbiased because I do uh, I do some online coaching for Leadville for Lifetime Fitness and so uh, you know um, I, I do have my own biases that way um, and I certainly did notice at times you can notice where there are I don't want to say money grabs necessarily but where they they are trying to kind of squeeze a few extra bucks out here and there but for the most part I found Leadville to be I, I found the community of the town itself, the community surrounding the race, where the original race founders are still very deeply involved and very visible as kind of the face of the races still. I, I found that whole experience to be really, I, I, had, I had almost nothing but good things to say about my experience there. I wonder how, and I know that there were problems in terms of the course being overloaded in terms of parking and maybe support crews in the early couple of years. And I wonder if that's uh, changed since kind of <coughs> lifetime has gotten their, their legs under them there, because I, I did have a great experience there and I, and I think they're trying to, they're still figuring it out, but I think they're making progress. Yes. Yeah, to my understanding that after they purchased the series from Ken and Mary Lee, that they, um, Ken and Mary Lee kind of took a step back and went on vacation, if you will. <laughs> and and that's when things got really out of hand. And, and this was, I'm going to say, 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. Yeah, yep. yeah, absolutely. It got really out of hand. And I think Lifetime took on this race series thinking that they were just going to be able to sell entries forever. Right. And, you know, you've got a permit that allows you 850 runners, and then they started 1,100. Right, <laughs> you <know? right. laughs> So it's like... Uh, and even Ken Kluber himself has said that 850 is too many. He thinks 600 is too many. 
And but after those years, they asked Ken to come back and help. And mm-hmm. so Ken Kluber really is the savior of the Leadville 100, because if he hadn't come back, I'd hate to see what it would have become. And, and, and Ken is also, I think he's in his eighties now and you know, Ken's, he's not going to be around being able to do this too much longer. And so, you know, lifetime really needs to figure out how are they going to be able to manage this series without Ken being there to save it? Right. Because he is very, he is very visible and very involved and yeah, Right, I think he's, I think that he's very old. <laughs> he is very old. He is very old. Yeah. But I, I think, right? I think, like I said, not having had any experience with it beforehand, I think he really did recapture some of that spirit and kind of keep yep. the race grounded in what it was when it was founded, which was but really a community event. And um, right, it, it'll be interesting still, to see what happens when he can't be involved as 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 aggressively. But there's still a number of missteps. Like a couple of years ago. Somebody from the Grand Slam committee wrote to Lifetime and asked them if if Grand Slam hopefuls will be allowed automatic entry as usual. And they said yes. Well, then Ken got wind of it and put a stop to it immediately. And and some of us who were in the Grand Slam got shut out of Leadville. Hmm. And And Ken was like, I never agreed to that. I don't care about the Grand Slam. I don't care about Western states. I don't care about Vermont. I don't care about Wasatch. I care about Leadville. Mm. Um, we never asked to be a part of the Grand Slam. And so it's just like, really? That's your stance? That's your attitude? And it's really antithesis to the community exactly. that the sport really is. And right. so it's, you know, and then uh, this year it was uh, Jim Walmsley didn't get selected in their lottery that they claim is is random. But yet they've yet to have a public lottery and show us how random it is. Right. And so, you know, Jim tweets at them, oh, I guess you don't want me to run. And literally on the same day that a few hundred people got a, sorry, you you didn't get to select, you didn't get selected to run Leadville, they invite Jim right in. Right. And it's just like, what are you guys doing? And now, you know, and, and, and look, I, I've got a spreadsheet here that shows the the numbers for every race in the state of Colorado, marathon or longer on a trail, and the number of finishers since 2004. So that's 15 years of data. <laughs> and it's not doing well. They're, you know, for a race series where when you're owned by a corporation, the bottom line is what's most important. Mm-hmm. Let's, be, let's be honest. Um, you know, they, they, they've already earned their invest, their return on investment has been earned. Uh, and now they're just making bank on it. But you can tell when a series isn't doing well when they start adding all kinds of distances to it. Like Silver Rush 50 now has a 25-mile. It has a 12-mile. It has a relay. It has a team relay. It has a so- – I mean, it's just it, – it's all of a sudden there's like this series that was great now has nine more distances added to it on race weekend. It's right. because – they're not making the money that they thought they were. And they're giving away way more comp entries than they ever have, too. Uh, and it's kind of inflating the numbers a little bit to give you the illusion that they're just fine. But from a business perspective, they're no, they're not. Well, and that's, I think, like you say, part of the issue of being owned by a, a big company where, where the bottom line is kind of the, the driver of everything rather than necessarily you know, the, the original race founders or the original race committee or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. and there's this constant pressure for, for growth and for, you know, showing profit and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, right. And, and as long as they are able to maintain the experience, I think things will, you know, especially for the, the hundreds for the bike and, and the run, things will probably be okay because of the tradition and the experience and, and the fact that people will want to do those races for a long time to come. But to right, I mean the the series, you know, if, if you need to keep showing growth and everything else, it's it's going to be hard to push those numbers moving forward. My big complaint with Leadville, like you said, has been this this lack of transparency around the lottery and around the entry process. Yeah, um, that's my biggest. That's my biggest beef. Yeah, now, too, as really. as as that whole, you know, as as states has taken you know steps to make their entry procedure and their lottery very transparent and hard rock to a a somewhat lesser extent but still you know adding some transparency to it this you know even for somebody from from the inside this remains very very opaque uh and it's it's very unclear 
as to how the lottery works and what the odds are and whether or not there's <laughs> actually a, a random lottery or, or what. And, you know, even the qualification process for getting into the 100 miler from the uh, from some of the shorter races in the series in and of itself is not very simplistic because it's it's, you know, based on different uh slots for different age groups and everything else it's almost like part of the um yeah but they're just giving coins out willy-nilly too that that's right that's that's kind of how it seems is <laughs> is there's there's a degree of randomness to it that seems um kind of antithetical to to the whole process and and right like you you brought up the whole thing with jim and and you know how he like th- these are easy things like that are easy problems to solve. Have have a certain number of spots set aside for elite athletes elite. that want to run. I mean, that's not a, you know, Rob last year, you know, had that amazing performance, maybe one of the best performances ever on that course. He was not in the in the starting field on the Monday of the race. I mean, that's correct. So, you know, you clearly have procedures in place, which a race of that stature should have a procedure in place if one of the five or ten best ultra runners in the world wants to you know, especially somebody who's won there before wants to jump in the race. So, okay, that's fine. But have those, you know, ha- it seems like sometimes, uh, especially surrounding the race entry, that that almost one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. Mm-hmm. So a- anyway, that's that's uh, we could go. We could have a whole episode about Leadville. Yeah, seriously. And, <laughs> and, and we shouldn't like I said, we shouldn't it, people shouldn't think we're just shitting on Leadville for no reason. I mean, it's it, it is one of the original slams and it and it has maintained a good following and and it, it you know maintains well, its status as a premier race for a good reason they d- they d- still yeah. despite everything we've said and despite these complaints they still do a really great job it's still a fantastic Absolutely. course it's still a wonderful community in Leadville Absolutely. and surrounding the race so you know it's yeah, not I, all negative but but when you when you have that kind of profile people tend to people tend to pick nits and and things happen you know i, I i'll end this part of the conversation by saying this Uh, over the years I've been really open and honest about my thoughts and opinions about Leadville and a lot of people have taken it as that it's it's my mission to just tear them down in order to build my series up and that couldn't be further from the truth how the hell could I tear down the Leadville race series (laughs) right and you know it's just not possible and people and I don't even consider myself a competitor of theirs because they cater to a, a kind of a different clientele of ultra runner than right. I do. At the same time, I am also an ultra runner. And I was an ultra runner first. I've been in this sport for 15 years. And I am a hist- I, I enjoy history. I'm a historian and I love perspective. And and for me it's more, you know, yeah, things are gonna change. Things are gonna evolve over time. But it shouldn't it shouldn't be at the expense of the everyday man and everyday woman that wants to run the race. Everybody deserves a fair shot. Everybody deserves equal treatment. And that's really what I've been trying to champion over the years. It's not to tear them down or, or take a dump on them. It's, hey, there's a better way to do this that is that that has integrity. Right. And 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 so here are my suggestions. Right. And 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 they've used most of my suggestions. So I can't be all that wrong. <laughs> uh yeah, so I mean, we're, it's not about being negative. It's more about, I mean, these are good conversations to have, and it's good to hear other points of view and opinions. And mm-hmm. and, and I appreciate the fact that we could have this so much. So yeah. thank you. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, you your series and and your races, I think, like you said, do uh, kind of target or cater to a slightly different kind of subset of of ultra runners. Tell us a little bit about the Human Potential Running Series for those who may not be familiar. What kind of races you put on, and and really. Your philosophy is a little bit different, so so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so you know, uh, I started the Human Potential Running Series in 2014, and it was it was right after that horrible Leadville year where everybody said, "Well, well, if you don't like how they do it, start your own." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, well, I did that, and now that I've started my own, I'm I'm kind of not allowed to have opinions." <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I created the Human Potential Running Series to to celebrate really more of the grassroots um, roots of our sport to really get back to what matters. And what matters is people. Right. And so I'm definitely people over profit. All of what I do to to set my race prices, I don't even look at what my cost is (laughs) for each race. I, I actually 
keep tabs of what everybody else is charging for their race of similar distance. And I figure out what the industry average is for Colorado, and then I charge $20 less. Hmm. Because, and I do that because, you know, I've seen a trend, especially here in Colorado, where 50Ks are costing upwards of $135 to $155. Right. To put that into perspective, the first time I applied for the Western States 100 mile in 2006, that was the entry fee for Western States. <laughs> wow. Okay, so now it's $400. $400, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've watched the, the market, the supply and demand kind of drive pricing up and I don't you know I've always I've always with somebody that old school ultra running tells you that races are for charitable purposes it's wrong for a race director to make money off of being a race director and I had to like really swallow my my pride on that to 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 kind of get into to race directing as my livelihood. But at the same time, it's, I can do this. I can make race directing my livelihood and make some money at it while also not robbing people right. for the experience. So, so yeah, grassroots, low frills. We've kind of increased the frills over the five years that I've been in business just because, again, there's a selfie culture out there and those folks want to take pictures of where they're at with their friends. But, but really, my, my race series focuses on the person, focuses on the individual. And I recognize that most ultra runners are battling something, whether that be mental illness, addiction, loss of a loved one, or any other kind of life challenge that is thrown at you. And ultra running is a form of therapy for people. Hmm. And so they, they come out here... Um, you know, to, to have mountain therapy. Uh, and they're also here to test themselves and see what they're made of and what is their potential? What are they, what is possible if I train and, and push myself to run a hundred miles or more? And so, you know, I, I've really made it my business to focus on those things, which is we have a race series that challenges each runners physically and mentally or mentally. And, um, I've designed my courses in such a way that the worst hill on the course is at like mile 41 of the 50 miler. Because <laughs> um, we really want to see what, you know, what kind of grit you really have inside of you. Uh, and all of my races are mountain races. They're on as many single track trails as I can find. They're in beautiful locations. I like to let the mountains speak for themselves. And I also believe in challenge by choice, which is the idea that every runner gets to choose what they run or don't run and they get to choose if their day is done or not they get to choose if they want to keep going or not and we celebrate just being human here uh we treat every runner as every runner is treated as an equal i don't give out comp entries to elite runners because who are they <laughs> right you know like the single mom with three kids has to go through a lot more hoops than Anton Krupichka, who lives in his van down by the river, <laughs> to, to train for a 100-miler, you know? like So this idea that the elites, they sacrifice so much and they train so hard to do what they do, well, yeah, they do, but so does the single mom of three. And so who are we to give the elite guy the comp entry because he's genetically gifted and the single mom of three kids who maybe can't even afford the entry we're going to make her pay. Right. And so like, these are the things that I've, I've really tried to focus on and, and try to see the forest through the trees, big picture world type stuff that who really cares about the elites? Not really. You no, know, like it's great. We can celebrate them. We oogle at them. We think they're amazing. But at the end of the day, it, it still doesn't matter. What matters is my experience, right? Your, your experience. And so, yeah, I, you know, I've built this series that challenges you. My races are hard. They're hard on purpose, but we also offer care and compassion. We're there to help you through the distance. We're also there to help you through life. And understanding that ultra running is a lifestyle. It's not a business. Right. It's a, li it's a lifestyle. And so uh, I've created a series that celebrates that lifestyle. And, and has, we've created an awesome community of runners here in Colorado. I think that's one of the kind of the great things about the sport is that I mean I'm I'm as much a fan as anybody else and we do episodes on this show where we talk about what the elites are doing and kind of review 
you know, big results and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, that's, it's super that's fun. Great. But yeah, one, awesome. one of the great things about the sport, like you said, is right that that, uh, you know, everyone's in it to a similar extent and it requires sacrifice from everybody. And, you know, on race day, you know, there aren't a lot of other sports where you get to line up on the same line and run the same course as the best athletes who are doing it in the world. And you get to have a very similar experience. Um, and, and right, that is something that, that we need to kind of cherish about, about the sport and the community. Yeah, you know, I still give out a DFL award at every race. And uh, it ends up being the prettiest award that I have made. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and folks who don't know, it's dead effing last. Right. And, and whoever comes in DFL at my race, they get this beautiful award that they get to put on their mantle. They get a comp entry to another race in the future to come and try again. And I actually have people that are, I mean, they come in last every time. And so they always have a free entry to another race. And, it's, <laughs> and, and some people are like, well, uh, they're fighting for it. They're competing for it. And I'm like, really? Nobody's competing for DFL. Right, right. And, I, and, I, and you know what? If, if they're out there the longest and they want to come back and suffer for the longest again. Right. Hell yeah, you can do that for free. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. You know, I, I think over time as the sport has evolved, we've we've gone through this constant ebb of flow in losing focus of what matters. And the race doesn't matter. Nobody cares what your time was. Right. There's so many people that are obsessed with their ultra sign up ranking. Right. But it, it doesn't matter. My ultra sign up ranking is my average percentage of performance over fourteen years. Right. That's not an accurate representation of who I am as a runner now. And not only that, but do you know who else cares about my ultra sign-up ranking? Nobody. Liter literally <laughs> nobody. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, you run a race and somebody asks you, oh, you ran, you ran a high lonesome? What was your time? Oh, my time was 30 hours and 10 minutes. Ask them what your, hey, do you remember what my time was? Ask them like 10 minutes later. They don't remember what you told them your time was. They right. don't care. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a pleasantry to ask. It, the race doesn't matter. The experience does. And that's what we focus on here. Right. Right. We talked a little bit about kind of the explosion or, or the growth of commercialism in the sport and money and, and sponsorship. <clears throat> I mean, do you, do you view this? generally as a uh, positive for the sport in terms of bringing more runners in, bringing more eyeballs in, bringing, you know, allowing people to, you know, make more of a living or a lifestyle out of it? Or do you kind of view it as more of a negative kind of bringing us away from, you know, the grassroots version of the sport? I think there's an illusion that there's money in the sport and there isn't. That's interesting. There really isn't. And I'm going to give you the best example of why. Years ago, Run Rabbit Run used to be a 50-mile ultra, and they decided that they were going to add 100. Right, I remember, and they wanted to have a $100,000 purse, they announced. And, and they've yet to have it. I Do think they've yet to get half of that. That's right, because there's no money in the sport. And then last year, or the year before, they were going to have this team division, this team competition where sponsors could pay 10000 bucks a piece yep. and field a team of four and the the three fastest times is their time, and then the winning team gets some of the money. And and they said, we need 10 teams or it's not going to happen. Do you know how many teams they had sign up? They had one. They had, they had yeah, and it was Altra. Right. They were presenting sponsor. Right. <laughs> they, had, they, had, they had one anonymous donor, but let's be honest, that's the, one of the race directors. <laughs> and, and I think they had one other. So they had three. And I asked people, name five running companies that have $10,000 to spend on that. And at the same time, La Sportiva turned around and said, we got 10 grand, we got 20 grand, we're going to give it to Leadville or whatever the number is. I don't know. But so La Sportiva turned and there, we're going to be the presenting sponsor of, of Leadville. And, and the reason La Sportiva is there is because New Balance abandoned trail running. Right. They don't even make trail shoes anymore. And so if you really think about like this idea that there's there's no money in this sport. I ultra sponsors my race series. We they didn't give me any money. I've got a buff. I've got a co-branded buff for every runner. Right. <laughs> you know like Orange Mud sponsors my series. They didn't give me any money. I've got a co-branded water bottle for every runner. Right. And so this idea that there's tons of money in the sport of ultra run it's just false. There there isn't. There's 
I mean, Red Bull has money, so they, they're throwing some money around. But other than them, really, all these companies are really choosy about who gets their money and who gets their product. And they're more interested in getting their product into the hands of runners than they are giving some race director some cash. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think, you know, I, I, I think that the commercialization of it with we have all these great sponsors, it looks flashy, it looks big, it looks, it just has the feel of being a big to do. And that's all it is. Right. It's an, it's an illusion. Uh, and so, you know, series like mine, you know, I, I love having Ultra sponsoring my brand because it makes me look bigger than I am. Right. <laughs> they, didn't give me, they didn't give me any money for it. Um, so, so I really don't think, I think it's a non-factor other than the fact that it's just an illusion and it's an illusion that people people buy into because of you know looks can be deceiving and you know if a series is sponsored by some big brands and, and don't get me wrong I, I i so much appreciate having ultra and orange mud and i have a i'm the first race series in the world sponsored by a cbd brand <laughs> and you know I, I love having all those folks involved but really they're involved for my runners it's not for me it's not so i can make more money it's not so i have more equity to toss around sure it's for my it's for my runners and so i really look at the commercialization as a net positive for the sport because it allows race directors like me to give more back to my runners for their entry dollar good um and and not it's great for the sport because it allows me to make more money or it allows me to advertise more right. none of that's none of that's true it allows me to take care of my runners better and so that's where it's a net positive. Right. And and yeah. if that's the case, then it's a plus. I mean, if it's enhancing right. the experience, then right. I mean, like you said, profit is, I think for the still the vast majority of directors out there, profit is, is, is a secondary motive. I mean, it's nice to be able to turn a profit. It's nice to be able to, you know, make a living or, or scrape it's by really or whatever hard. it is. But it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But as long as, I mean, again... Most people aren't going into this thinking they're going to make a ton of money, and it's it's more about providing, it's giving back to the community and and providing uh, an experience for for the athletes. And if if the you know degree of sponsors involvement is such that it enhances that experience, then right, I think I think you have to view it as a positive. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to ask you before we get you out of here, you've you've raced all over the country. You've raced in in many of the iconic races uh on trails and everything else in various parts of of the country what's your favorite race distance and what are your some of your favorite races and race experiences that you've had over the past 15 years oh god <laughs> yeah i've done a lot yeah <laughs> I, I think my all-time favorite race is the vermont 100 i've done it six times uh out west my favorite hundred is the cascade crest 100 oh okay that's another old-school classic race. Yeah, I love it. And it, and both of those races have a similar feel. Uh, and I think it's because they benefit local nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a fantastic board of directors that make those races, you know, move like a machine. I actually uh, really love Massanutten Mountain Trails 100 in Virginia. Oh, do you really? It's, yeah, it's another favorite of mine. I used to, I used to say that my favorite distance is the 100. And uh, I think it's it's I think it's the fifty mile now because I get to go home and go to bed. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm kind of tired of being up all night. I'm I'm tired of my stomach going south at mile eighty. It gets old. Like you know, I've run a hundred miles or more twenty three times now. And, oh wow! Uh, and yeah, it's just after a while, it's I'm I'm finding it harder to to keep going because I don't have anything left to prove. Right. Right. You know and. Uh, there's not many people at 37 can say they've run 2300s. Right. It's less than it's less than two dozen. <laughs> so I'm like one of less than two dozen people in all of America who can say that, and and that's good enough for me. So yeah, yeah I, I love the 50 mile distance. I actually hate racing in Colorado because of the altitude. No, because of the feel. It's just different here. How so? Um, a buddy of mine just went back east to run in the Heiner Challenge. Oh, sure. I know Heiner. Pennsylvania. Yep. And he said, my God, what a different world. It was like being at a family reunion. Yeah, that's and, the perfect way to describe Heiner. Exactly. And everybody's there to drink and be merry. And yep. there just so happens to be this bullshit race going on. <laughs> and here in, 
Colorado, everything is a everything's a race. Everything is about performance. Right. Everything is about how awesome a runner you are or not. Are you somebody or aren't you somebody? Uh, and and I think even some of the races uh, out here, they definitely cater to and coddle the elites and put them on pedestals and and it's just it's not the same. And I so I've actually enjoyed traveling everywhere else to run ultras since moving here instead of actually running ultras here in Colorado. <laughs> hmm. Well, that is one of the, yeah, one of the things that you get on uh, kind of the East Coast in general, and I think the Northeast in particular. And, and I don't want to yep. just say the Northeast. I mean, certainly with uh, Dave Horton's races in Virginia and, and like you mentioned, Massanutten and those kind of things. Yeah, definitely that, that kind of family feel, that community feel, and, and um, where... Right. I mean, people are competitive and, and people are putting up great, great performances, but that's, that's a little bit secondary to the experience and to the community of it, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, look, I'm, I'm still an old schooler at heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm from the East coast and the first six years that I was an ultra runner, I used to run ultras in new England where there were, where there weren't many, there was only like four or five ultras in all of new England at the time. And right. I, I used to travel to Virginia to run with Virginia happy trails and their fat ass runs and, and some of their races. And, and, and I, I really am somebody that was brought into this sport valuing the concept of community and that the race doesn't matter. Uh, and that's been a culture shock for me here in Colorado. And it's why I have the human potential running series is because we are the series here in this state that offers what the East coast has just out here in the mountain West. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. And I know not everybody is on board with it. Not everybody likes it. Not everybody understands it. Not everybody likes me even because of it, but, <laughs> at, you know, at the end of the day, I'm confident and comfortable with what I'm doing because it fills a niche that's needed here. And it, it's obvious that, you know, you know, that our series is doing great and people people need this and want it. And and, and I'm really proud and happy to be, to be the guy that provides it. Are you still involved in peak bagging and uh, through hiking and that sort of stuff? Or do you not really have time for that anymore? Actually, whenever I get burned out, that's where I return to. Yeah. I always go back to peak bagging. There's always mountains to climb. Well, especially and, uh, in Colorado, that's that's a great kind of secondary pursuit there for sure. My girlfriend wants to hike a hundred summits in a calendar year. Wow! And I'm totally all about it. I'm like, hell yes, through <laughs> this running thing, let's just go peak bagging. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm totally, I'm all about it still. I love it. That's great. That's great. Sherpa John, before I let you go, we have to play the stupid game that I play with all my guests. We are going to oh, play the game called Desert Island Picks. Okay, uh, okay. this is uh, I'm going to take I'm going to send you to a desert island for a year, and you get to bring one book, one album, one food, and one beer with you to a desert island. I want to know what are you bringing for a year on a desert island. <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> my book is a book called Forest and Crag. Forest in yeah. Crag? Forest and Crag. Forest and Crag. Okay. And it, it, it is the, it's, it was written by Laura and Guy Waterman, who are, they're, my God, they're on the Mount Rushmore of Northeast Recreation. Um, but anyway, it's like a definitive history of, of outdoor pursuits in the Northeast. Where, you said you studied uh, outdoor education and hospitality. Where, where did you get that uh, education? University of New Hampshire. Okay. Okay. Because I have friends who uh, also did similar stuff in like uh, outdoor recreation hospitality in the Northeast uh, out of yeah. Pennsylvania, though. Yeah, it's a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Anyway, yes. Forest yeah. and Crag. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't, I, there's all kinds of stories in that book. They're great. Uh, my album, mm-hmm. it's going to be The Lumineers. Anything The Lumineers. You're the second or third person who said that on the show. I love them. Yeah. And, and, you know, before the Lumineers, I'd probably say Electric Light Orchestra. <laughs> a little bit different. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. One food. <laughs> Pizza. Yeah, that's the only correct answer. Yes, there is. Yeah. And one beer. Oh, man, that's hard. Um, <laughs> Especially in Colorado, for sure. You know, somebody And, and Vermont, ran, for, that, for that matter. I just held a race that was donation-based, and somebody brought me a yingling. 
and I about died. <laughs> really digging deep that, for that one. <laughs> that that thing was gone in like five seconds. But out here, it's uh, it's ninety shilling. Ninety shilling. Yeah, it's by Odell Brewing. Okay, Odell Brewing. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I'd spent uh, seven years in Philly, so uh, I, I, I drank more than my fair share of Yingling. That can is gold out here. You can't even get them. Like he shows up with the Yingling, and then halfway through the race, he comes to the aid station. He brought a second can of it in the can, and, no less. Because we, yeah, no, I was just like, oh, uh, no. In, in Philly, you drink it out of the bottle for sure. You just run. The, you just won this race without ever running a mile. <laughs> Sherpa John, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Hey man, I really appreciate it. Yeah, good luck uh, at Cascade or wherever you're going to be. Where, what are you? Are you racing this summer, or are you just directing mostly? I'm actually shadowing at the World Championship Borough Race in Fair Play, Colorado. Uh, that, going, that's on my uh, list for sure. I've read so much about that one. I'm going to be the next race director of the World Championship Borough Race. So are you really? I'm yeah, I'm so I'm shadowing there. I am running Never Summer 100K. Oh, cool. And Trying to run 300 miles across Colorado and Arkansas Traveler 100 is my 100. Favorite. Oh, fantastic. All right. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Have fun with the burrow racing. I'm going to, once you start directing that, I'll have to hit you up for, uh, for a burrow so I can make my way into that one because that, that just looks like a great time. You just call me the ass man. <laughs> Everybody, thanks for joining us in the pain cave today. And until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Still young, and I was still.